<clears throat> so first and second Samuel, uh, like we've talked about that, it was originally, it would be read together in two separate uh, scrolls. And one of the things that you, um, uh, it would have to be divided in that way because you couldn't have that larger scroll. And so it is helpful, like if you were to read those together, uh, it, it, it's, it helps you understand um, a lot of different things. So we're going to look at first Samuel first, hopefully look at second Samuel later. Just as a, a, by way of review, if you have, um, haven't been in the Old Testament in a while, you, just, you know that God has uh, chosen a people. Um, Abraham was told, like, I'm going to make you a great nation. You'll be a great people. You'll have a land, and you will be blessed. And you'll be a blessing. And he, he lays that out for them. And if you studied the, the history of Israel, you know that, that God... Uh, had them in Israel for a time, rescued them out of Israel. They come up on the promised land. They did not trust God. They spent 40 years in the wilderness, and then they enter into the promised land. And once they enter into the promised land, um, there's a period of time that you have God's people in God's place. But with regard to experiencing the fullness of blessing, uh, of course, that's never fully realized. But they really weren't united yet as, as a people in a place with a king. And so uh, that's kind of where we are. And, and just as a side note, we're not, we'll probably talk about it some later. It, um, Moses said, you will have a king. In Deuteronomy 17, I think it's verse 14, uh, in 15 maybe. But there, there's this, I mean, God's going to give them a king. Uh, it, it was just that uh, he would appoint that king. They kind of want to get that earlier, and they want it their way. And so we're going to see that as we move through um, Samuel. And so I, I think you just kind of keep that in your mind. There are three main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David in First Samuel. So those just kind of be, be helpful to know. You're going to see all three of them. Uh, this is the, the time when, again, it's going to unite the kingdom. Instead of a bunch of separate tribes, and, and uh, we are kind of finishing the period of the judges where there are separate tribes and there's these judges that kind of are raised up in different regions for a period of time. Uh, there will be a, a kingship, and you will see that uh, kind of unfold before you as, as this, this works itself out. The first seven chapters are about Samuel primarily. He's emphasized as a key leader and prophet. Uh, the next uh, chapters, we will introduce uh, Saul, Israel's uh, first king. And uh, what you'll find is uh, he is a king like the nations. That's what the people want. They want a king like the nations. They get that in Saul. You're going to see him rise to power and then tragically kind of fall. But in his fall, you're going to see like God's king, a king after God's own heart, David, who will begin to uh, rise to a place and, uh, of, of prominence and, and later he will be the king. And so he will be kind of God's man who started in this humble situation versus uh, Saul, who's the people's man, who is kind of exalted. And is, people looked at him and thought, oh, he's a great king, and him kind of fall into a tragic kind of place. So just kind of getting you in the context of it, you kind of thinking that through. Now, one of the things that you want to see uh, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, which uh, Lanny just read to us this morning, is that like in this prayer uh, given to us um, that we are able to read, it's a prayer um, from Hannah, Samuel's mother, but in that prayer there are 
kind of a number of things you see that really are kind of set the theme. Okay, that kind of set the theme for the book. And what we see is like God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. That, that's one of these major themes and we're, we're going to kind of keep reiterating that as we move forward. Another thing, secondly, uh, kind of despite human evil, God is at work is another thing that, that you kind of will see. Um, and thirdly, God will raise up a messianic king. Like that's just, you see all three of those in that, that prayer of thanksgiving. But, that, but that's going to be kind of the structure that we look at this whole book. And, and really, we're kind of going to move through first and second Samuel, and you'll see that at some level um, as you move through. Now, three things today that you just want to kind of wrap your mind around. The first is this, um, verses 1, 1 through 18, because we're looking at 1, 2 through 10. 1, 1 through 18, you could say it like this, Hannah's provoked by the proud and humbly submits to the Lord. That's just how, for me, it's clear enough. I can see that. Uh, verses 19 through 28, Hannah's prayer is answered and she fulfills her vow. That's, that, that would, again, just help me kind of summarize that section. And third, Hannah's response to God, a prayer of praise in 2, 1 through 10. So those are, if you're trying to, in your mind, kind of fit together the sections, those are the, that's the passage we're going to be moving through and that's how we, are going to kind of look at it as we work through it. So let's look at verses 1, 1 through 18. And again, Hannah's provoked by the proud and humbly submits to the Lord. That, that would be how we would work through that. Now what we see here is there is a man, probably a prominent man, a man of means, who has uh, two wives. And sometimes we're not going to like look at every name potentially. We, I might mention them, but there are some names that are difficult for you. And I want you just to understand the context. So there's a man with two, two wives. One has multiple children. The other is unable to have children. And the one that's unable to have children is Samuel's mother, uh, Hannah. If you think about the Old Testament, you could look back at a lot of instances where, uh, or a number of instances where barrenness is a part of a story. You see that in the life of Sarah. You see Rebecca, who spends 20 years without a, a child. I, you know, we see Rachel was barren. We see one of the judges' uh, mothers, uh, Samson's mother, was unable to have a child until the Lord opened her womb. Later in the New Testament, we see Elizabeth, uh, who very late in her life had John the Baptist. And so it was very common for God to, to work in this way, where he closes a woman's womb until... He has a, until his uh, specific plan is unfolded. And, and that would be something that you see uh, somewhat regularly, like I said, in, in the scriptures here that we, we will see uh, take place. Now, another thing just to say, just to note, is that there is rivalry there. And again, we've seen that as we see uh, situations like this where people begin to be at odds with one another uh, in their family as these things unfold. Now, um, one of the things that uh, the author, let me see here, Davis noted is this. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. 
Our hopelessness and our helplessness are no barrier to his work. Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. God, he delights in displaying his glory. And what you'll see oftentimes is there is a backdrop, a dark kind of backdrop that he will use to shine forth in a glorious way. It really is, uh, I was telling uh, the little basketball team I'm coaching in one of our devotions, I said, there was a time we went out in the woods, I got lost, and um, I, I, um, I remember thinking, like, I don't know if I just need to stop or wait. I mean, I, you know, it was, there were a lot of kind of, you know, thoughts that ran through my head, but then... Uh, I remember seeing a light. And when that light shone up and I could see it shining, I knew rescue kind of had come. You know, and, I, and, and that was just, and I, I remember actually a lot of times um, being in a deer stand waiting for somebody because, you know, I was younger and they kind of let us sit up there while my uncle hunted not far from me and he would hunt until dark and he would come get me afterwards and so I'm just sitting there in the dark. But when I could see the light, uh, him kind of moving through the woods, the old three-wheeler, big red, coming through the woods, I was like, oh my goodness, thank the Lord. But, but it's like that, that kind of thing where God works so often, like where it's total inability, total like just, I don't know what to do, and, and we find ourselves there, and then he rescues. And, and really, I, I think it's just important to note, like, when you're without resources or without hopes or without any like gimmicks you can pull out of a bag out of your hat and you look down and you say none of the gimmicks will work and then the lord acts then you can really say god did it that you know like that's a blessing to be able to say and see that now when you're looking at these in verses three through seven here you see that there's elkanah was a spiritual man the husband here who annually went to worship before the Lord, he, he demonstrates something of a commitment to the Lord. And we see that throughout uh, this passage. This is a dark time in Israel's history. We're coming out of the Judges, which is a, a period of time where it's just spiraling downward in decay and darkness and rebellion. And you come out of that time period, uh, and you're, you're still in it, really, and you're watching this unfold, and you say, these people really walk with the Lord. Now, one of the things that we see here is that, like Jacob of old, he favors one of his wives. He favors Hannah. And so there is, like, tension within these relationships. Uh, Peninnah would use this time, even of worship, to kind of, like, go after Hannah and say, basically, I have all these children, and you don't have any. It, It would be a way of almost being able to say, like, who's really blessed of the Lord here, kind of? And so there's this constant struggle going on within this family. <clears throat> Verse 6 says, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And this went on year after year. And I, and I think, again, it's just important that you understand that this this provoking, and some of you may say, I've been in situations like that, 
where it seems to continue and continue and continue thinking like, where's the relief? And you see her in that situation in verse 8, her husband tries to console her by saying, but you have me. Am I not enough? (laughs) I was like, man, is that the best one thing you could bring to the table? You know, like, you got me. You know, she's looking at him, scratching her head like, I understand that. I want a child, you know. But, but he, he comes to her, and, and what you see is he is affirming, though, his love for her. He is affirming that. He, he, he is doing that, and you see that in a very clear way. Now, one of the things that you see in her distress, have you ever seen somebody get mad at the Lord in their distress? I mean, I, I don't think it's wrong to say, like, I was, I was really frustrated. I don't know why God has me in this place, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure Hannah went through those times. I, I, there's, I mean, people struggle through that. We see the psalmist, you know, will struggle in different areas. But one of the things you see is, like, sometimes trouble drives people away, and then sometimes trouble drives people to God. Right? Would y'all agree? Romans chapter 5, verse 3 through 5 says, like, this tribulation, what does it do? It puts the pressure on, and the heavier the pressure, the further you run into God. Like, I, I, I've, I've had moments like that in my life where I, I knew, like, the, 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 I mean, I guess you could say this dark well that I was being thrust into did not make me say, oh, I'm running away from God. It, it, I found myself running into God, running after God. Right. And I and I so I think that that's and again, I would not say, oh, I take credit for that. I would say he graciously drove me to him self like he is driving me into him through my trouble. And and I and I would rejoice in that and say, I've seen him do that. And so she is one who has gone to the Lord before and continues to go to the Lord and praise and praise and praise. I was thinking about the uh, woman that Jesus talked about, the woman who uh, wanted to go to a king, and he was kind of a sorry king, and she kept going to the king and going to the king and going to the king. And, and basically he said, like, it's, I mean, really, when we're thinking through that, you're saying, like, he won't, he's not even answering the request because he's a good guy. He just wants to get that woman away from him. But how much more does the Heavenly Father, who loves you, love to see you run to Him in a humble state and cry out to Him for mercy and say, deliver me. He delights in that. He delights to, to draw His children to Himself. Like it's, it's a, there are places in those darkest moments that you go that you have never been before and that in those those moments there is an intimacy a calm in that storm and and God doing that in your life you 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 say maybe I don't want to go there again but you would not want to have never been there you know and so anyway in that moment she presses into the Lord and she says to him now in a time period in the period of judges the refrain at the end of Judges is, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In that time period, in that, that place where people are rejecting God as king, clearly. In that time period, 
She is pressing into the king. And she is saying, O Lord of hosts, that is, O sovereign God who commands the universe, you can do anything. You are all powerful. I'm pressing into you. You are the only one who can grant my request. You have delivered our people in distress before. Please deliver me from this condition. That's kind of, in my mind, the way I would would see that and understand her. And she even says, like, and Lord, if you grant this request, I will give back to you what you have given to me as an offering, really. And I, I, when, she, when it says, she says, and his hair will never be cut, it's, it's like the same thing with Samson where there was this kind of from birth, a Nazarite kind of vow where it's setting him apart for God the rest of his life. That's what she says that she uh, will do. He will be dedicated wholly to the Lord. Verses 12 through 18. She continues to cry out before the Lord. Eli is there. And we're going to find out a little bit more about Eli. But he is there and he uh, sees her. And, and, and we kind of do wonder, is Eli very sensitive, spiritually speaking, as we go forward? We'll kind of think about that a little bit more. But is he, uh, you know, there's sometimes where you think, is he quick to hear like what the Lord's doing or observe what the Lord is doing? But he sees her. He's like, hey, you drunken woman, get out of here. We don't need that here. This is like the temple for crying out loud. You know, and and evidently in that time, you'll notice what she says. She says, "Um, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. I mean, there were probably those type women there. And in that time, that period of the year, we, we read about them eating and drinking and stuff. And people might just be sitting over there in a drunken state. And so... They get to this place. She says, listen, I am pouring out my soul to the Lord. She is speaking to the Lord in her sorrow. And you notice. Eli answered, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. I mean, there may be some kind of prophetic voice, some kind of prophetic speaking that he's doing here where he's saying, may you get what you request? Or is he saying, like, you will get it? I mean, there there may be, some people may argue back and forth, but there's a way of, like, confirming, like, God grant will grant you. I I have kind of, I lean that direction. God will grant you your request. And, And really, from that point on... She responds in a way where she's saying, then let the Lord do this for me, kind of. It's like, let, let your servant find favor in your eyes. It's, then the woman went in her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It's kind of like she gets up, she has petitioned the Lord, she has poured out her heart before him, there is peace, she steps away, uh, really, I think, in faith. Now, sometimes we say, like... Um, you might maybe think of uh, people in different times in salvation history say, well, how much intimacy did they have? Could they go to the Lord? Did they speak to him? All that stuff. Like we do see here a, a pressing into the Lord. And you see that throughout the life of David for, for sure. 
But, but I, it makes me wonder sometimes about us. Like, how much more confidence do you have about going to the Lord? Like Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you sense that? That you can run to the Lord, that you can pour out your soul before Him, that you can cry out to Him, that you, you, that you can do that, and yet you know, I have access. I mean, that's a great blessing to see and understand and comprehend. So those first 18 verses, you see a woman in a um, provoked by the proud, but who humbly submits to the Lord. And then in verses 19 through 28, you see that the Lord answers her prayer. As you move forward through there, you, you'll see she will conceive and she bore a son. And she names him Samuel. It's like uh, maybe the best way to understand that is like he, the heard of God. Like he, the Lord hears kind of or heard my request. And, and she goes and, and from that place like she's remembering all of that. She's not forgetting uh, the prayer, the time that she spent uh, with the Lord, this is very like much she's seeing God do this in her life. And remember, Elkanah again is going to go up, make his offering before the Lord, this annual offering. Hannah says, I'm not going to go up. And you see his spiritual sensitivity where he's kind of like, he's not going to, um, he doesn't, he wants to make sure that they're right before the Lord. She says, let me wean him and then I will bring him back before the Lord, and he will serve the Lord forever. And so probably what happens is over uh, a three-year period, uh, that child would be with her, and then she was going to bring him back uh, to be in the service of the Lord forever. Now, I've wondered this week, like, do, do you feel like this would be a, that this is like, um, that you, you look at this situation and think, why in the world? She cried out for this child for so long, and now she's going to have to give this child back to the Lord? Would that be a delight to her or not? You know, because you kind of, like sometimes when we think of it, we're like, wait, I've got to give my child up? I, I really do. I think, I think because of what we see in her life where she longs to glorify God, and this is some way she knows that she can do that, and, and she has like sought the Lord and she knows that she can offer this child back to the Lord. Like, that is the place of delight. Sometimes we forget that. That is the place of greatest delight in someone's life is say, I can now offer this child back to the Lord in service to him. That's really what a parent, any parent who really wants to serve the Lord, that is what they want. They, they don't see a child as a possession, but a, a child, and that's what we've been reading about, but a child is something that we want to offer those children to the Lord and to be in service for Him the rest of their lives. I mean, that, that, that's, that's your hope with any of your children, is that they would be uh, an instrument in God's hands and that they would be glorifying God. And she just happened to be sending Him off early. I think 
there is something that's like, I'm sure that there were times where she thought, I wish I could keep him. And you know that she did not want to, at one level, let him go. And on another level, she's like, he has this great calling of serving the Lord. And so it is the place of great delight. And I think for all of us, we're, we are constantly wanting to remind ourselves that, again, and we, we're, we're reading this in that Paul Tripp book, our children are not our possession. We, we really are. Our goal is to be ambassadors to, for the Lord to show them the way to follow him. Like, that's, that's our ultimate goal in life. We're constantly wanting to point them back to him. So, when she gives him, or when she's going to give him to the Lord, she's going to rehearse this wonderful gift of God that's been given to her. She's going to rehearse that, that God has done this, and then she's going to offer back herself to him and offer her child to him. And I think that's an interesting thing, too. It's like, when you think about like the marvelous salvation you have, in response to that, you want to offer your whole life. That, that's what you always see. Somebody who thinks that the gospel is really good news, they receive it, and then they want to give themselves back to the Lord, and this is the way that she is able to do it. Now, um, I thought about this this week where uh, in our own lives, like Anna, when we were naming our children, she was uh, more... Um, I, mean, I don't know, maybe more thoughtful than I was about some of that. Early on, we started talking about it, and she said, I really want to uh, name our first son, you know, William Bruce, and our second one, Benjamin Phineas. And she had reasons, like she wanted to name them that, and things that she prayed for them specifically. And she was talking to them this last week about the significance of their names and the type of prayer uh, that that she prays for them. And then she, of course, told Samuel, like, your daddy named you. And by that time, I caught on. Like, we're going to be thinking about this and, and be prayerful about what we, what, what we want to pray for our child. And uh, she um, even shared with him, like, that. And so w- there's this constant state in, in her mind, and she often has to remind me that we are, that we are wanting to, to raise our children, that they might live for the Lord, serve the Lord. And there's great significance in and what we are praying that would that God would use them to do, and so that's that's a great blessing uh, in our minds and our hearts, and I hope that is with you. Um, as we keep moving forward, so we see this request granted, we see her fulfill her vow, and then we see a prayer of praise, and this is really uh, a really neat section here. So let, let's look here at verses one through three. And Hannah prayed and said, "My heart exalts in the Lord; my horn is exalted in the Lord." My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. What is she saying? I pray to the Lord, my salvation. She, she's, she starts in a very personal way where she's saying the Lord has delivered me she she had this long period of time where this uh, her you know I guess rival as the scripture would say it had been like mistreating her and and she cried out to the Lord and said Lord do you not see will you not deliver and he did deliver so she kind of has this emphasis on a kind of a personal salvation 
And you might say it's it's a mini kind of thing. It's not like her soul in the sense, but it's like he's rescued her from a dark place. That's where she starts. And some of you may say, I have moments like that. Those moments have shaped my life. I, I know those times where God delivered me. God rescued me. God changed my life in this moment. It was like out of this kind of horrible situation, he brought forth this. Many of you would say that. Those are very powerful moments in your life. It was a powerful moment in her life. But look at verses 4 through 8. What does she say here? She says, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. She leaves from this very intimate kind of personal situation to say, this is how God's always done it. This is how God is. This is how God works in the world. This is like saying like, this is the general trajectory. This is how God acts in the world. This is a general truth that you can set your life upon. The humble will be blessed of the Lord. They can find strength in the Lord. The Lord is with them. So you've just read this story about this woman in this desperate place. She cries out to the Lord. The Lord answers. She responds in more worship. And then we get here in in verses in chapter two, verses one through ten. She says, personally, God has rescued me. But this is how he's always worked. And this is how he's working in the world. And then in verses nine and ten. He speaks of kind of this future salvation slash kind of judgment. What's that all about? It's saying he'll never stop working like that. That's ultimately how it's all going to shake out in the end. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's this picture of this messianic king that will overthrow all the rebellion in the world. And he will deliver his people. And they can be confident of that. So it's like, not only do you have these many salvations that you see throughout the life of a believer, that's how God works. But not only that, in the end, that's how it's going to be. And I think it's important that we see that. Psalm 2 speaks of this. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So in life, there are these moments. And every time God lifts you up, it is a reminder. Every time in your humble state, the Lord delivers you and lifts you up. It is a reminder of how God works. It is a reminder. It is a reminder that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Every time you bow before him and say, you must deliver. God, I've found myself. And I don't think God puts you in every situation. Your life is not like that. But but he does do that with his people. And every time you find yourself in a humble place, which is good for you, and he lifts you up. And He raises you up. It should be a reminder. This is how God works. This is how God works in this world. This is how God works in the end. And we have to see that and treasure that, I think, in our hearts. There are little signs and symbols for us. That God is a God who delivers the brokenhearted. God is the God who takes the humble and raises up their head. God is a God that you can trust and you can run to. We should never look down on those little things because that's how the big things work too. And in the end, one day when King Jesus returns, everyone will know that those who humble themselves before Him will be saved. Those who have rejected him in their pride will be damned. God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you show us how needy we are. How you demonstrate that over and over. How you teach us that in the small things. How you work in that way in the big things. We pray that we would see that, embrace it, and treasure um, the plan that you have for us individually, corporately, and eternally. In Christ's name, amen.